gentlemen. Welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of one of the largest and oldest wrestling families on the planet. The Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. Through 93 years and four generations. The Stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee stud. The Tennessee stud. You will learn that name. You will remember it. And now, the stud here. Please welcome the Tennessee stud Ron Fuller and your host, Jeff Maldron. Hey everybody, welcome in once again. It's David Summers hosting another stud cast with the Tennessee stud Ron Fuller. And again this week, we're sending our best wishes to Jeff Maldron, who we hope is back very soon hosting this very stud cast. You have found the only podcast on the planet which is documenting the real story of professional wrestling. Get ready for 100 years of rich wrestling history as told by the stud. Now, please welcome the originator of the stud cast and the man who changed the podcasting world with the super stud cast. We step back into the ring and back into time with the Tennessee stud. Our man, Ron Fuller, is on this afternoon. What is up, Ron? What's going on in your world? Oh, man, it's just fine, Dave. Everybody around here is doing well and... uh we're surviving the corona and uh, staying healthy, and that's about the best we can hope for, I guess, in this time frame. And uh, just uh, happy to be on again and got old uh, Lightning saddled up, man. And uh, I think we got a good one for him today, Dave. We're, we're going to one of these topics is, I think, gonna it's going to be uh, quite a shock to a lot of fans. Actually, it was a shock to me when I figured out this. And uh, mm. so... We've got a good ride scheduled for everybody today and uh, ready to go when you are. You never let us down, Ron. Where are we headed today? Let's get it. All right. We're going to open up today with uh, the new Today's Training that we've done. Uh, this will be the second one. And uh, this one, I think, is going to be uh, something pretty different for fans. Uh, this week, uh, we're going to be wrestlers. Uh, last time, we were owners. This time, we're going to be wrestlers. We're going to be flying to St. Louis. We're going to lace up our boots and we're going to do something that's never been done in any nine hour period by any wrestler ever before or since. And uh, we're going to be the only person in the history of professional wrestling to work with four Hall of Famers in nine hours. Wow. <laughs> this sounds impossible. Uh, and, and believe me, having experienced it, it damn near was. <laughs> it was, <laughs> was not easy. So uh, Southeastern uh, in this program is going to be entering July 1976, and we're really gaining a lot of momentum at Southeastern. Uh, we're we're working our way in this summer to shatter an all-time Knoxville attendance records that have ever been set there. It's a beginning for Southeastern. It's not the end. We're going to continue to shatter records for years. Uh, we're going to cover uh, who's coming and who's going during this time frame, as far as wrestlers are concerned. And we're going to talk about some of the angles that we're developing in the fall of 1976, um, about three months ahead of where we are. 
So we're going to close out with our learning tree and today's questions are specifically about the NWA convention and how Sam Muchnick gained so much power organization without being a wrestler. I think that's a hell of a question right there in itself. So that's what we've got scheduled for today. All right. It sounds like another great ride today. So we're going to start with today's training. How about that? All right. Cool. That sounds like the place to go. And I think we're going to try to start just about every one of our programs with this today's training segment, because uh, it's not only educational, uh, and this one is extremely educational, but much more than that, this one is darn right historic. So uh, last week, we were owners of a territory, and this week, we're all going to be wrestling, okay? And uh, we're going to lace up our wrestling boots, and we're going to set an all-time record for any wrestler that ever lived in today's show. And I know that's saying a lot. So uh, let's jump right in and let's see how it's done. So we're going to wrestle four Hall of Famers and seven of the toughest wrestlers in the world at this time frame in one nine-hour period. Uh, Many people are going to question this. And uh, right off the bat, I want to challenge any wrestler alive out there, any historian out there, if you hear this program today, Find someone that can say that they've done this in a nine-hour period. So let's start today's training and uh, by putting yourself in, in my shoes. Put everybody out there in my shoes and uh, making us all wrestlers. And the date we're going to accomplish this on is Saturday, September 1st, 1973. So let's begin by ending the night before, which was August 31st, 1973. I've just wrestled in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. I live in West Palm. And I've gotten a win over, guess who? Don Carson, oddly enough. So back in 73, I was contending with Don Carson. So from here, we're going to experience what the next 24 hours is going to be like for a professional wrestler, and me in in particular. So going to ride back home in West Palm about midnight, just after midnight. And at this point, I'm pretty tired. But it's too late to eat because I've got to be on a plane and get up in four hours to catch a plane to St. Louis, Missouri. Wow. So on Saturday morning, it's dark. About four in the morning, I get out of bed on Saturday, September 1st, 1973. And I'm going to wrestle on TV in St. Louis that afternoon. I don't know how many matches I'm going to have. I don't know how many shows they're going to do. I don't know who I'm going to wrestle. I know nothing, but I'm booked in St. Louis. So between 1973 and 1978, St. Louis was kind of home for me. Uh, I had wrestled 28 times at the famous Keel Auditorium in St. Louis. And St. Louis at that time was the home of the National Wrestling Alliance and its president, Sam Muchnick, who we're oddly enough going to talk about later in today's show. So wrestling in that city puts us in a unique class. Uh, when you wrestle there, you have to be among the best in the world. Every card. It's not like a regular city runs matches. There are, it's in territory. It's one city, but it happens to be the city of the president of the NWA, and he gets to invite whoever he wants. And when you're invited there, you never say no. I can tell you that. It's an opportunity to make a name for yourself. That's where most world champions are going to develop is in St. Louis. So our Delta plane takes off at 6.05 in the morning for Atlanta out of West Palm. And we're going to change planes in Atlanta. So I get into Atlanta at 7.30 in the morning. So I'm going to have breakfast there in the airport uh, during my little layover. 
and I haven't had a meal since five o'clock the day before. So I haven't been eating very well. I'm doing a lot of traveling, and it's really hard to to get everything done. I'm going to catch a TWA flight, Transworld Airline plane to St. Louis. It's going to leave at 10 a.m. Eastern time, and it's going to arrive there at 10:30. And then that's because we're going to change time zones. We're going to fly out of the Eastern time zone, which we're leaving at 10 o'clock, and we're going to actually get to St. Louis at 10:30 in the morning. Sounds like it's a 30-minute flight, but it's an hour and a half flight because right. we're flying into Central time. So this TV taping is going to begin at noon. And Limo picks me up about 45 minutes after I arrive at the St. Louis airport, and he takes me to the taping. Uh, This is a normal procedure. I used to fly in on Saturdays, do those TVs, and fly back out. Sometimes I would go in there on Friday and wrestle the house show, then work the TVs on Saturday and fly out. But in this week, there is no house show. So normally they tape two shows, two one-hour TVs every other week. And that was because that uh, Kiel Auditorium was only run every other Friday night. Sam didn't like to run every Friday night. Every other Friday night's the way he wanted to run St. Louis. So he didn't have a need to make television every week. He made them every other week when his talent was there most of the time. This time, they were taping three shows, which is very unusual. Most of it, I'd never, this is the first time that I've ever went there and they, they taped three shows. So this is just one of the 38 times that I wrestle on TV in St. Louis, which is a tremendous number of times over a two-year period. It actually was over more like a four-year period. Most of those matches and those televisions came within that 73-74 period. And when we arrived there, we're told that, that we're wrestling on all three TVs. That's not good news. I mean, the so, which means that we're going to be there until about 3.30 or close to 4 o'clock in the afternoon. And uh, that's going to cut it real close for me to even be able to catch the plane out of there. And uh, that's probably, and then probably, and not just probably, but definitely, it's going, to, it's going to mean that I can't take a shower after wrestling three times. I'm going to have to get on the plane without a shower and fly out of there. And I'm going to be wrestling in Tampa, in St. Petersburg that night. So that also means that I'm not going to have, I've had a little breakfast, but I'm not going to have any lunch or dinner this day. (laughs) I'm done today. I've had all the food I'm going to get today. I'm not going to have time to eat. So usually TV matches, pretty fairly easy matches because, uh, you know, I've been there a lot and uh, and I'm pretty popular at this point. And I've been on 38 TV, so I am very popular at this point. And normally after you've been there that long, you get these easy opponents on television. And all you basically do is get these squash matches that you end up getting yourself over. And uh, that's the normal TV. But this day is no normal day. From the beginning to the end, there's nothing normal about this day. So the first TV is against the rugged and famous Johnny Valentine. So we're told, Johnny and I, that we got to go at least 20 minutes, uh, about twice as long as most TV matches are. And fans out there, if you bear in mind the TV matches, are much more difficult than ordinary matches. And part of that is because you got this bla- these blazing hot lights uh, that you have to have to record grid video, and they hang right over the ring. Usually just barely enough when you slam somebody, their feet don't get up there in the lights. Mm-hmm. So it's going to make you sweat twice as much as you normally would, and it's going to sap your strength. All television matches are going to do that. It's unusual to have one 20-minute television match. This day is going to be pretty freaky. 
So let's get back to Johnny Valentine. Uh, most wrestlers just absolutely hated to work with Johnny Valentine. He was stiff, and that's to say the least about him. He was very stiff, actually. And uh, we had luckily uh, worked with him many times. And I'm talking about we. I want everybody to just make, kind of pretend that you are me on this day. And I've worked with Johnny a whole lot of times in Florida. And it made it a little easier for me and him. Uh, except, uh, you know, I got very tired uh, in the first of these three Tavia matches that I'm going to work that day. But in this match, I got a win on television over one of the greatest wrestlers in the world, Hall of Famer, Johnny Valentine. That was extremely unusual. In fact, I think that's one of probably the one of the few times Johnny Valentine ever did a job for somebody on TV. Uh, after that first match was over, we go back and we asked about who we got on the second show. And uh, Stiff just got a lot stiffer because uh, the answer from Pat O'Connor, who was the booker, he says, Ron, you're, you're working with old Gene Kaninsky, <laughs> the former NWA world champion, the football great out of Canada. The Oh, gosh, man. This guy, is, it made Valentine feel like a schoolboy. You know, this boy really, this guy really hammered you. And uh, then I got even worse news. <laughs> you know, when we sat down, me and Kaninsky with the uh, with O'Connor, he says, uh, I'm going to need about 20 minutes. <laughs> and I was like, whoa, man, I just did 20 minutes. So Kaninsky, he was a grinder. He was always a up-and-down guy, and he really put a lot into his matches. And because this is a TV match, and it's going to be seen by thousands and thousands more people than an arena match, Kaninsky's going to push harder than ever. And I knew he was. You know, he wants to – you got to work harder on the TVs because – you want to give them a best match you can possibly give them on television because you're going to draw them into the arena with these TV matches. So, and then why, why not? Why wouldn't he push harder? Because this is his only match of the day. You know, he's like, got one of these TVs and I got all three of them. And this is going to be the second of the three TVs for me. So we end up in a no contest match. The match is stopped after we fight basically toward the end of it all over the studio. And I'm exhausted. I'm pretty darn tired by the end of this one. And, and, and uh, you know, I would have been headed back to the airport normally on a normal TV day. But this TV day is certainly not normal. At about 3 o'clock, I'm talking with the, my last opponent for the day. He's the guy that, uh, that never blows up. And he's not worked any of the shows. This is his first of three shows. And it happens to be my third show in a row in the last three hours, and that guy is Terry Funk. Wow. <laughs> so, like Kaninsky, uh, you know, it's, it's it's his only match of the afternoon and uh, and my third in a row. So, you know, and then to make matters worse, as this, this day isn't going badly enough, <laughs> O'Connor says, uh, you know, Ron, as soon as you finish this match now, he goes, you don't leave the ring because we want to interview you immediately. <laughs> I was like, well, you want to talk to me immediately after I've gone through Valentine, through Kaninsky, and through Terry Funk. Uh, this will be an hour that I've done three matches on television in one hour. So it's really turning into a pretty difficult day. And then, uh, you know, it gives me that immediately following the match. You're going to do an interview. And this match ends up pretty much like the last one with Kaninsky. We fight all over the studio. We both get disqualified. It's like, wow, you couldn't expend any more energy than what I was during the course of this afternoon. So after this match, 
we only get a one minute break before the interview starts. So during that one minute break, and now I'm so blown up, I need five minutes to just catch my breath. And I've only got one minute till the red light. And then bang, I'm looking at the camera and all of a sudden there's that red light, which means it's time, daddy, you got to go. And, uh, you know, I hadn't even caught my breath. I hadn't even come close to catching my breath, but uh, it didn't make any difference. So there's no time for it. So you got to roll. So the two minute interview starts and about a minute in, I'm so exhausted that I start to feel I'm going to vomit. I'm going to get sick <laughs> in the middle of the ring, in the middle of an interview. <laughs> it's like, oh, no. <laughs> you know, I could tell that it's like, oh, gosh, I don't know if I'm going to make this. So I'm watching the clock run down the last 30 seconds and I'm gasping for words and for breath. And I'm trying my best not to embarrass myself by throwing up on television right in the middle of an interview. I'd have been a joke for wrestling forever. The boys would have given me hell forever. You know, it was an absolutely horrible experience, that interview. I thought it would never end. And as soon as that red light went off, I didn't say anything to the commentator. I dove out on the floor and ran upstairs toward the dressing room to get to the bathroom. But I didn't make it. I actually threw up on the stairs going up to the dressing room. You know, it was kind of a fitting ending to one of the worst TV days of my life. You know, to have to throw up after an interview. It was pretty, pretty darn dramatic day. That's pretty amazing. Three matches in three hours. One of those is Terry Fung. Now, that's that's not that's not a, a good day, right? Oh, no. I mean, (laughs) guys don't experience that type of thing. I mean, it's hard enough to wrestle Terry in a regular match and not on television. But when you wrestle him after wrestling Johnny Valentine and Gene Kaninsky, it's just, (laughs) you know, people would say that's a joke. And I think what's going to happen is people are going to say this is not real, but it actually happened. and, uh, And I can prove it. I have a registry of all the matches I ever had. And I was looking back. And the reason I wanted to do this today is I saw this afternoon there's three television matches so you know basically it's not over yet my day isn't done i don't like i said i don't have time to take a shower i just uh, throw my sweaty gear in my bag and i run for the limo and uh, he takes me to the airport and i get out and a run and i run to pass check-in thank god it's not like it was today where you got to go through all the searching we're talking about 73 and you could pretty quickly get to an airplane I just ran past the uh, check-in station and right straight to the gate, showed them my ticket, and I was able to get on board. And that TWA flight leaving from there, going to Tampa, left the ground about 4.30 Central Time, which means it's 5.30 already in Tampa where I'm going to land. So I'm scheduled to wrestle that night, St. Petersburg, Bayfront Coliseum at 8.30. I get into Tampa. plane gets in about 8 o'clock. I get into a taxi. It takes me across the Howard Franklin Bridge in Tampa and to downtown St. Petersburg and uh, to the Bayfront Coliseum. When I go in the door to the dressing room, the matches have already started. Uh, So I got to throw on my wet gear. And my challenge that night is I'm in an eight-man tag match. I got my brother as a partner. I got Paul Jones. Not the old Paul Jones that we speak about sometimes from Atlanta, but the Paul Jones that was a big star in Florida and the Carolinas and Paul Jones and Roberto Soto. And we're wrestling against Dusty Rhodes, Dick Slater, 
and the Florida Tag Team Champions at that point, the Samoans Reno Tafuli and T.O. Taylor. Wow. Two big, strong, tough guys. So uh, there we are. We're, we're lacing up our boots. <laughs> if you're still with me, we're lacing up our boots, and we're putting on those wet soaked trunks from the televisions of the day. And we go out, and we the team loses that match. And that's about what anybody would expect it after a day like this. So I get the opportunity to take a quick shower. And I go back to the airport. <laughs> I catch the last flight of the day from Tampa back home to West Palm. It leaves at 11 o'clock. I finally arrive home at 1 o'clock in the morning, 21 hours after I left the house. Uh, I've not eaten since 8 o'clock the morning before. Not this morning, the morning before at 8 o'clock. I've had nothing to eat in 24 hours almost. I've flown more than 2,000 miles on three different planes. I've wrestled four Hall of Fame wrestlers in nine hours. I beat one, and I wasn't pinned by any of the others. And I wrestled a total of seven of the toughest wrestlers of all time in that nine hours. So welcome to the life of a professional wrestler. No uh, doubt. Wow. So, so before we end, Dave, uh, I want to challenge any wrestler or any wrestling historian a wrestler from any company in any time frame that can say that they wrestled four Hall of Fame wrestlers in nine hours. I don't believe there's another wrestler that's ever accomplished that feat other than myself. Well, it's absolutely unbelievable. Is it something that you had intended or was it just the way the circumstances fell that you knew that it was eventually you found out, okay, wow, this is going to be one tough schedule for about a 21 hour period. So was it, was some of that a coincidence or was it planned that way? Oh, it was the coincidence, my man. If I had known what I, what I had in front of me, I might not have caught that plane to St. Louis. No man in their <laughs> sane mind would have caught that plane. So, but but <laughs> you know? so, so you're still sweaty and everything. Once you arrive in Tampa and drive over to St. Petersburg, you don't even have a chance to get a shower before you get back into the ring again. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't shower. I mean, I probably smelled pretty bad to those boys. They probably thought, <laughs> what the hell's wrong with him? You know, uh, but I, I did have the opportunity to talk to a few guys in the dressing room about my day. You know, right. <laughs> they were like, you work with who? And I said, Valentine, Kaninsky and Funk in right. <laughs> three matches. They but were they, like, God, right. <laughs> you serious? How the wow. heck did you survive that? And those three matches in St. Louis, they would have been over the next three-week period that folks would have seen that in St. Louis? Oh, yeah. I mean, when they watch those TVs, they don't realize right. that you're doing all this in one afternoon. Yeah. Within three hours, they yeah. think that, hey, he's on again this week. Look, he's wrestling this week. Oh, look, he's wrestling Funk this week. You know, But they don't realize that, no, he wrestled all these three guys in the same day within three hours. So, uh, you know, that gives it fans at home. You know, we're talking about doing the educating our fans here with the Studcast about all different aspects of the sport. So this this story is a real lesson, I think, about what it's like to be a wrestler, my colleague. You know? Oh, no. Uh, some no. days were unbelievable, and this was one of those unbelievable days. A absolutely. It reminds me of Tony Stewart in NASCAR, who actually ran in the Indy 500 and then straight over to the Coca-Cola 600. So 1,100 miles in one day with a, a helicopter and a, an airplane flight in between. So anyway, that's that's just an amazing day. All right, so what's going on now? What What's up next, Ron? Well, we're going to jump ahead 
to July 2nd, 1976. Uh, we're going to be uh, having wrestling, uh, and uh, we're going to call it the first July Spectacular uh, for Southeastern. And uh, we'll talk about that card in Knoxville at Chilhai Park Amphitheater on that night. And uh, we'll discuss the, the results of this card later after we talk about the TV. But there's three main events on this card from July 2nd, 1976. The opening match is Randy Fargo who's no relation at all to the famous Fargos, to Don or to Jackie Fargo. And uh, Randy Fargo is going to be wrestling Don Lambert. Uh, and then there's a great babyface match on this card. Mike Stallings took on Butch Malone. Uh, the first main event is the much-anticipated Ron Wright showdown with the trader Louis Tillet, and he's going to be managed by Don Carson from the match last week that we talked about last week. Second main event is for the Southeastern Tag Championship. The new tag champions, Norvell Austin and Carl Von Steiger, who are managed by General Homer Odell, are going to be defending against the former champions, Robert Fuller, my brother, and Jimmy Golden. And they're going to be managed by Mike Stallings, one of the boys that was in the second match of the night. There's a special stipulation for this match. If Jimmy and Robert don't win the championship belts in this match. They both have to leave Southeastern. So, you know, put a little pressure on those boys, that's for sure. And in the last main event of the night, the Southeastern Heavyweight Championship is going to be up for stakes toward Tanaka, the champion, managed by Homer Odell, is going to be wrestling against that big <laughs> overnight sensation, Bob Armstrong. So... Before we get to the results of this card, let's take a look at the highlights of the TV that promoted it six days earlier on Saturday, June 26, 76. Ron Wright got hurt the night before this television severely by Louis Tillette and by Don Carson, who showed up unexpectedly at the amphitheater with his crutches. And those crutches take part in the injury that Wright, Wright suffers. So the TV opens with a shot of the crowd from this Friday night that I'm talking about, flowing out of the amphitheater, uh, two matches before the end of the night because Ron Wright had been injured and the ambulance arrived and the siren blaring and the fans just left the, left the amphitheater. Uh, thousands of them actually went outside to see Wright get carried out and put in the ambulance. Uh, and he's sent to the hospital. He's going to get some stitches. He's going to have x-rays. And, uh, Ron Wright uh, is on this opening of the program, and he's sitting next to Les. They get a good, nice close-up of him. You can see clearly the 15 stitches above his black eye. I mean, it's like, it's kind of takes you back to uh, January when the superstars got a hold of him. You know, there he is again, above the big black eye and 15 stitches in it. So Les apologized to Ron, you know, about what had happened to him the night before. He said, Ron, you, you have anything to say about this? And Ron was really humble about it. And he explained how stupid he had been to let Louis Tillet, who was newly arrived from Canada, fool him into thinking he was a new friend of his. And then he continued on uh, about how now everybody knew that Don Carson was behind probably a plot to set him up. And it was time for him to get even with both of them. Uh, the standing room only crowd, which was happening at every television at this point, standing room crowd, they, they just applauded him. I mean, they loved uh, Ron Wright. Les thanked Ron for joining him, and he announced that fans could stay tuned for the personality profile later in the show 
because Ron was going to be back on, and they were going to show a longer video that had a lot more stuff in it about what had happened to him. So it was the first TV in July, and July was a television rating month. So we're into one of those rating periods where I want to pump these TVs big time. So Les finished uh, with Ron, and he left, and then Les quickly announced that the Southeastern Television Champion Tor Tanaka was going to be defending his title on the show today. And, uh, you know, after Ron Wright going teasing him with Wright's going to be on the profile showing the entire match, and Tanaka's going to be on later for defending the TV title, I don't think anybody sitting at home turned their TV channel. Right, <laughs> I, right. believe, I believe they're pretty much going to follow this show. Yep. So uh, he then threw it to the ring. There was Rick Connors in the ring and the announcer Phil Rainey, and it was the first live match of the show. And Connors got announced before his opponent entered the studio. And when that opponent did arrive, the crowd erupted, man, and booze. Uh, Louis Tillet appeared, followed by Don Carson on crutches. And both those guys had smiles on their faces. Camera got their close-up. They were smiling like Cheshire cats, man. They had, they had gotten to Ron Wright. You know, Don Carson had gotten some of his revenge. And uh, old Louis, uh, you know, who was a perceived babyface, he showed up as a babyface anyway. He'd, he'd been greeted by some cheers in his first three weeks, but uh, there'd be no more cheers for Louis Tillet. <laughs> He's definitely not going to ever get a cheer again. So it didn't take long for Louis, who was a pretty darn tough customer, to show his skills and his ability to dominate most wrestlers. And uh, during the little short match that he had before he took care of Connors, Don Carson couldn't help but try to steal the show. He was getting in front of the cameras and he was he was smiling and he was brushing back that long bleached blonde hair <laughs> and uh, just uh, and he was standing on one crutch. He had gotten rid of one of his crutches by this point. He was where he could walk on one crutch rather than two, and uh, you know he he was just trying to get his face in the picture. And that was Don's typical deal. The studio crowd, they never quit booing. After Tillet entered the studio, uh, after he won the match, after him and Carson went to the set, that crowd never stopped booing. I mean, uh, Carson had so much heat, and now Tillet did too. When uh, they finished the match, they went to the set with Les. They started asking about, you know, why don't you pull up that, that deal you know, <laughs> that you showed a little bit of earlier? And show these people what we did to him. We want to be here. And, uh, you know, so <laughs> Les got upset. And uh, he wasn't scheduled. They weren't supposed to be there. And uh, he fired back that he wasn't going to give Carson or to let the pleasure of describing the horrible events of the night before, by gosh. That, and he then reminded them that they weren't even scheduled to be on the set. And they were, kept talking. And he just said, okay, we're going to commercial break. And they just kept screaming, wait, wait, that we ain't through. And. <laughs> they just do off the air. They went. He threw them off the air, basically, which was a good thing. I really liked the way Les handled TV. You know, he had that way of, uh, you know, he knew what fans wanted, and he gave them a little bone right there. So this show had a real long interview segment with Homer Odell and his champions, and I say his champions. And he now has the hardware. For Professor Tanaka is uh with him he's wearing his southeastern belt and he's carrying his big old huge television championship trophy that he's going to be defending later in the show and out comes norvell austin and carl von steiger wearing their new southeastern tag championship belts like i said they owned all the hardware at this point now and uh they were having a big rousing celebration 
Because as Homer put it, it was long overdue. He and his men had finally attained their goal. And then he bragged that we paid back the southeastern fines that Jay was stuck for us because the southeastern slaughter about us hurting Ron Fuller and, and Dick Steinborn. He goes, now we've paid our money back. We own all the belts. I mean, those guys were on cloud nine. So Les reminded them and the fans that Tanaka was going to have to defend his title later in the show. And he was going to defend that title against Butch Malone, who had been one of Homer's men. Uh, him and Austin had been the Southeastern Tag Champions for quite a while. And Tanaka laughed because it was Butch Malone and uh, so did Austin and Von Steiger. And they were just slapping uh, Tanaka on the shoulder and having a big laugh about it. And Homer chimed in that, you know, it's about time that that bum Butch Malone got out of here. You know, he says this is a good way to end his career right here today on television. So Homer's new champions, Austin and Steiger, they went straight to the ring for a television match, a live match, and they got them a very convincing win. They were a darn good team. And then that was followed by the personality profile with Ron Wright that had been teased in the first of the beginning of the show. And this personality profile was a classic. It told the entire story of the Don Carson and Ron Wright feud in video style. That's very effective, more effective than just words. When you can see it, the picture's worth a thousand words, and this profile is, is basically that. It began on the night of the Southeastern Slaughter, June 4th, 76, with the tag match where Carson and Wright were partners. And uh, Carson had left him alone in the ring with Tanaka, Austin, and Homer, three guys. It showed Ron tackling Carson on the concrete uh, as Carson was trying to make his way to the dressing room. When he left right, right went after him. And that's where Carson sustained the ligament damage. And that's the reason for Carson's surgery. Ron Wright had gotten even big time. And uh, then uh, they showed the following Friday night's match, just a little bit, where Toledo had helped Ron Wright back to the dressing room and another six-man tag where Wright was thrown over the top rope and was having real difficulty. And Louis Toilette came down as a friend, supposedly, and helped him back to the dressing room. And then they finally showed the turn from the night before, where Louis was was actually partners with Ron. And it showed uh, what had happened after the match was over and Ron was celebrating to the grandstand and Don Carson comes out of the dressing room on crutches and Ron is having such a good celebration with the fans. He's, he doesn't turn around to, to see Carson coming. Carson sneaks into the ring, and uh, it basically showed the whole incident. It showed uh, how they Carson broke the crutches over his back, how Toled popped him in the head with one piece of the crutch, and, and uh, then it showed the, the siren and the, and, the, and the ambulance taking him to the hospital. So but by the time his personality profile's over, the feud between him and Don Carson was back on, man. And they, they had more heat than ever. So the following Friday night, this is going to be the third match of the five-match card. But it might be the biggest match of the night. So this TV's loaded. It's got them all on it. Uh, it's a great way to begin this July rating period. Uh, Robert and Jimmy are in the third match, and they get a quick win. Jimmy wins with a drop kick off the top rope. They're interviewed about their do-or-die opportunity to get their belts back, and if they lose, they're gone from Southeastern. A great segment. The last match of the show is the TV championship match with Tor Tanaka defending against 
Homer's former man, Butch Malone, and Malone ends up bleeding. Tanaka opens him up with those karate chops, and then he beats Malone right in the middle of the ring. But that wasn't enough for Homer. He sicks Austin and Steiger on him, too. So all three of those guys are in there just pounding on Malone. The match is already over. Malone's bleeding. And then the television studio got their biggest pop of the day. Bob Armstrong came to Malone's rescue, and he cleared the ring with a little karate demonstration of his own. And uh, Bob was really over after only two weeks in Southeastern. I mean, he was really on fire. And he came out for the last interview. He watched the video the night before in the amphitheater where he broke down on Tanaka uh, with another karate demonstration and got disqualified. So it was another great show. It led perfectly into another big Friday night. It seems like these TV shows are getting bigger and bigger every week, Ron. Yeah, they, they, they're, uh, we are, we got a lot going on, Dave, at this time of year. And uh, at this time for Southeastern, the summer's just getting hotter too. The TVs are getting better and the summer's getting hotter. Uh, newcomers are arriving and stars are leaving more than ever for Southeastern. On July 9th, back the following Friday night, Carl Von Steiger's brother, Kurt Von Steiger, is going to arrive in the territory unannounced. And he's going to arrive in a really good way. Fans are going to hate him right off. These two guys are focused on the tag championship. July 16th, I'm going to return. Uh, not to wrestle, but I am going to return. And a fantastic heel named Frankie Kane, called himself the Great Mephisto, is also going to make his first appearance in Southeastern July 16th. Following Friday night, July 23rd, either Robert or Don Carson is going to be leaving Southeastern. Loser leave town. One of them is going to be gone. July the 30th, Dick Steinborn going to return to Southeastern and he's going to come back as a masked baby face called the gladiator. He's returning from that big injury from the Southeastern slaughter of June the 4th. And he's going to come back getting revenge on the guy that put him in the hospital that sent him off on vacation with a big, bad injury, Norvell Austin. So in early November to add to all this stuff that's going on, Terry Funk is going to be coming to Southeastern to defend the NWA world championship. And there's going to be an angle that's going to start in the summer pretty soon, quickly in this time frame. It's going to run for almost three months, all the way up to the match. Uh, so there's plenty of angles happening. There's a lot of tremendous talent in that southeastern area at this time. And that combination is always going to lead to attendance records. And they're about to be shattered, all of them, as southeastern explodes on the wrestling world, summer of 1976. All right, let's stop you right there because I think we're at a great spot for a break. More coming up. This Studcast will continue in a moment right here. Super Studcast number 30 has probably more laughs than any Super Studcast. Cactus Jack is the Mick Foley character, focused in on his old school time frame, where he worked for Continental Wrestling, Memphis Wrestling, and World Class Wrestling in Dallas, Texas, at tmstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. Ron's brother, Robert Fuller, Colonel Parker of WCW, and Tennessee Lee in WWE was best friends with Mick Foley, and they still are best friends today. If you like wrestling stories, 
Cactus. This is a great one. Cactus Jack was a member of Robert's Stud Stable in the late 1980s. So much history and hilarity in this tremendous super stud cast at tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. Only $2.99 for three hours. Saddle up for everything from the early days to hell in the cell. We are back, and the stud cast continues. The history of wrestling is told by the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. Where are we headed now, Ron? We're going to talk about the results of that card, July 2nd, that we talked about earlier in the program. Uh, we were going to, first match was newcomer Randy Fargo, and he got his first win ever for Southeastern over Don Lambert in the first match. Mike Stallings and Butch Malone had a great babyface match. And Stallings won the match with a sleeper hold. And after winning the match, it's a babyface match. After he put Malone to sleep, he woke him up, as all decent guys that use a sleeper did. And uh, he got Malone up on his feet. They shook hands to arouse an applause from the crowd. And that match was Butch Malone's last Southeastern match. He'd been there for about seven months. And uh, Butch Malone, was that was it. He will never come back and wrestle for Southeastern again. But he was a young star when he came there. He had developed quite a bit, and he went on to be a bigger star. Next match set the tone for the evening, by golly. Everybody was waiting for it. The Ron Wright versus Louis Tillette match with uh, Louis managed by Don Carson. And the fact that this wasn't the main event was a tribute to Southeastern, having added so much great talent over the last year. This would have been the main event match when I came there in 1974. And now it's the third of five matches. So, you know, it just tells fans where this company's headed at this point. So Carson and the Tillette, they came to the ring first. Carson was now available at this point to walk on one crutch. He can do one crutch rather than two. And uh, they got a huge, loud, and boisterous reception, obviously, from the crowd. They got tremendously booed. And it, it might have been overshadowed when Ron Wright came down to the ring with the cheers from the crowd because he brought his brother Don with him. And so it was supposed to be Carson as a manager of Tillette against Ron Wright. And Ron's not, he's no dummy. You know, that that's, he's, he's already got those two guys beat the hell out of him the week before. So he brings his brother with him. So Tillet and Carson, they take the microphone away from the announcer and Carson gets on there. And you know, Don Carson, Dave, I mean, he could get it done. And he started protesting. Don Wright even being there. You know, he claimed that that boy right there has no license by the Tennessee Athletic Commission to manage a wrestler, you know, and then he got his wallet out and he took out his license and he said, look, I hear you. He said, come here, Rick. Phil Rainey, who was the announcer, he had Phil come over and he says, tell the people what this license says I'm qualified to do. And uh, Phil says, well, ladies and gentlemen, this says that Don Carson does have a license to be a manager. So, you know, the crowd booed. They didn't like the idea that Don's not going to be able to do it because he doesn't have the qualifications or whatever. So Ron, being the old slick boy that he always was, he let the crowd quiet down. And then he says, uh, (laughs) he says, Phil, come over here. And he said, bring the microphone. And he had Donnie jump up on the apron. And he said, uh, take it out of your pants. <laughs> so Donnie reaches and gets his wallet. And he hands it over to Ron. And Ron says, uh, tell the crowd what this is, Phil. So Phil took the microphone from Ron. And he, and, and he, he says, 
ladies and gentlemen, he goes, uh, Don Wright has a license here to manage <laughs> for the Tennessee <laughs> Athletic Committee. Oh, the crowd popped. It was like, wow, Doug Carson's done. Guy. Oh, Carson went crazy. He stormed around the ring as much as he could do with one crutch. And, you know, so this match was off to a great start. While all this is going on, and uh, uh, Louis manages to get behind Ron Wright, and uh, he attacks him, and the bell rings, and boy, the bedlam begins. And this was one of them old good old Tennessee dog whoopings that Ron Wright always bragged about. I mean, Ron, it was great. You know, uh, the amphitheater was rocking, man. Ron Wright brought out his chisel. He whacked Louis Tillette, and that Canadian bled all over the ring. I mean, uh, they just stopped the match after about 15 minutes. If both guys were disqualified. It was just a big, big time brawl. Probably another 15 minutes before the crowd <laughs> quieted down after they left the arena. It's like, gosh, the crowd was so into it. Man, that was so great. And as Ron would have said, that's a real good Tennessee dog whooping there. You know, <laughs> so they really got into it. And the coming weeks, uh, this program between Ron Wright, Don Carson, and Louis Tillette, it's going to set arenas on fire in the Southeast. People are going to flock to see these guys go at it. Next tag team match on the card was another great one. The new champions, Norville Austin and Carl Von Steiger, defending the Southeastern titles, their manager, Homer Odell. They're against Rob and Jimmy, and Mike Stallings is the manager of Rob and Jimmy. So Rob and Jimmy had lost the week before, and uh, if they lost again and didn't win their championship back, they had to leave Southeastern. So this was a wild match. Both Rob and Jimmy survived numerous near pins, crowd was on their feet for i'd say 75 percent of this match at the end of the match mike stallings got involved with homer odell on the outside of the ring it kind of drew norvell austin's attention jimmy sneaked around opposite side of the ring climbed up on those top ropes and norvell turned around and jimmy planted those feet in his face you know and the rest was history (laughs) he pinned him right there bam you know and the amphitheater exploded Uh, but it wasn't over yet There was another surprise for everybody in this one. Suddenly, out of nowhere, Rob and Jimmy and and Stallings, they're celebrating, and uh, the other guys are kind of upset, the guys that have lost. But suddenly, there's a guy that comes out of the dressing room. It's Carl Von Stryger's brother, Kurt. I mean, these guys look like twins. And he pins out of nowhere, and he nails Stallings from behind. And uh, the other three guys uh, jump on uh, Rob and Jimmy, and, and he gets involved too. It was a tremendous ending to that match. Fans were shocked. They were like, who is this other German? You know, what the heck is this all about? And uh, no one had any idea there were two Von Steigers. We never said he had a brother. And now he's got a brother that's just come from out of nowhere. It's going to become a part of Southeastern. And uh, with Stallings down, the four of them got on Rob and Jimmy. And, you know, they left them laying. Then, then they went to the dressing room. Uh, you know, and this, this angle that started that night is going to be like the Ron Wright angle. It's going to take off. I mean, fans are going to really get into it. And that's amazing when you've got an angle, when you have two wrestlers who are brothers and nobody has a clue that he even has a brother and they look tremendously alike in that situation. So, man, this is a great night, but it's not over yet. There's, there's way more to come, right? Yeah, there's another match. Yeah, the, and it's the main event. It's the last of the three main events, and that's Knockin' Armstrong for the Southeastern title. 
This is a great match, too. For the first time since Tanaka's arrival in Southeastern, he's going to bleed. You know, I don't think people thought that anybody could make Tanaka bleed. And uh, Armstrong did. Armstrong went crazy on him. And uh, when he did, he got disqualified. And he just got worse. Once he got disqualified, he just went crazy, sure enough, on Tanaka. And baby faces had to go down. Uh, You know, uh, nobody could pull him off. Homer wasn't going to get in there. (laughs) He was staying away from Armstrong. Heck, no, I'm not going to go get him. And uh, his boys came and tried, and Armstrong knocked them off. He went back to Tanaka and back to Tanaka. And so finally, baby faces went down. And I, for the first time since I'd got hurt on June the 4th, I went down. I had to actually get hold of Bob with the other guys and drag him out of the ring. He was delirious. Wow. So, you know, these fans, they had a good night. <laughs> that that really was a huge night, Ron. I wish we could keep going. It is time to get that cold drink. Let's get freshened up and have a seat under that learning tree. And what are we talking about today, Ron? Well, today's learning tree question comes from a gentleman named Sean Cavaney. And it's about NWA conventions. Uh, he wants to know how were they conducted? What topics were discussed, uh, how decisions were implemented, and uh, and why such trust was given to Sam Muchnick, a non-wrestler, as president? A group of great questions, and fans always have have a curiosity about the National Wrestling Alliance and the meetings and how all that business was handled. So uh, I'm going to open the door to that for fans today. Uh, Let's begin, uh, Mr. Cavaney, with your first question. Uh, How were NWA conventions conducted? They were usually about three days in length, and most all of the members and many of the wrestlers around the country came to the convention as well. Uh, And they all came to conventions in one hotel, same hotel, and they all arrived there most of the time a day early. I used to go a day early, and everybody else went a day early. Some guys went three days early. Because it's Las Vegas, you know, why not? So the meeting opens every morning at 9 o'clock, all the three days that it goes. It's a three-day meeting. And it closed at different times every day, depending on how many issues were being discussed and what was going on. Uh, The rooms where you met were actual meeting rooms uh, and very large ones. Across the front of the room, they usually had one table there. And always sitting at the table was the president the vice president and the secretary, three people at that table. The president, which was Sam Muchnick, most of this time, uh, he had a gavel just like the, you know, they do in Congress or a lot of other places where meetings are going on. You know, and they, he pounded the meetings to order, and he pounded sometimes to try to get the meeting back to order quite a bit too. So uh, various subjects were all obviously discussed. And the president had the power to recognize members, and uh, he was responsible, basically, for controlling discussion. Most discussions were calm, and the meetings were very organized. But in one particular year, the year that Antonio Inoki's Japan company tried to get membership, along with the currently recognized NWA Japan company owned by BABA, there was a major conflict that year. Lots of gaveling that year by President Muchnick animosity in the room constantly, and a totally different environment than normal meetings. In all my years in the NWA, this was the biggest conflict I can remember and uh, the most animosity in that meeting that I can ever remember in an NWA meeting. 
And Mr. Cavani asked about the topics discussed. The topics were as diverse as the membership itself. I mean, and the membership came from all over the world. Anything from the language used by the members, one year, that's based upon San Francisco promoter Rorschach's outburst of profanity, which he was famous for, to, or it could be, uh, you know, uh, discussing the finances of the NWA or maybe discussing examples of what companies were doing to technologically improve their televisions. And uh, I seemed to always be a part of that. Every time they, and they did those every year, they would ask me to come up and, uh, you know, because we had done a pretty decent job of putting together a great program at Southeastern. They was recognized by the NWA as the best. And uh, I had the opportunity. That's when I was get to do my thing sometimes and practically every year. So you never knew what to expect when you arrived and what was going to happen at an NWA convention. Uh, you ask about decisions. Mr. Cavney did. Decisions were made. And all discussions were controlled by the president, as I said earlier. But every member was allowed the time to give their opinion before there were votes. If you were going to vote on something, everybody got a chance to say what they felt about it in front of everybody else. Uh, simple issues were normally decided by a voice vote. You know, if it wasn't a big contagious matter, they'd say, who says yeah, how many yays, how many nays? Pretty simple. But in the case of, say, the Japan controversy, there was handwritten votes, uh, but you didn't put your company's name on it. Uh, nobody said yay nor nay. You never knew how anybody voted. That was a great idea because there would have been real problems if it hadn't been done that day. The intention of these meetings was never to create problems among the members. Uh, by not making public how individual companies voted on controversial issues, they didn't create problems. It was a smart idea. The goal, obviously, of the convention was to keep the atmosphere friendly and informative. That's what you were there for. The goal was to end each meeting with the same camaraderie that it began with three days earlier. Everybody was friends. They left as friends and no problems. That happened almost every year from 1975 when I became a member until 1987, the last meeting I attended. And at that point, 1987, things were beginning to fall apart in the sport of wrestling and things were changing forever. So I have to add here, too, that uh, that much was accomplished uh, that didn't take place in the meetings. Uh, and, you know, it was at night when owners had the opportunity to meet privately with each other for dinners and for intimate conversations. That's where the real business of the NWA convention was done. It wasn't done in the meetings. It was done after the meetings. It was done personally with guys that were building relationships with each other. Uh, it was the building of these relationships during this time that was, I think, the most beneficial to being a member to the National Wrestling Alliance. <laughs> Uh, your last question is, why so much trust was given to Sam Mustick as president of the NWA, even though he was never a wrestler? And that's a very good question. Now, off the top of my head, I'd like to say, you know, I'm thinking that the fact that he was never a wrestler was the exact reason he was president. You know, this is an organization. You got to think back. Uh, it's filled predominantly with men, those that began as wrestlers, and they go on to become promoters and owners. These guys in this in this meeting room, they're they're men not just of strong bodies, but of strong egos too, and uh, lots of testosterone in that in, in those NWA meetings, and in a lot of cases, 
there's men in there that are looking for conflict. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't think that type of personality would have inspired peaceful meetings, to be honest with you, especially with the, when there was great differences of opinion in the room, obviously. So Sam Mutzig was a totally different type of man. He was soft-spoken. He wasn't an athlete. Uh, he didn't have a huge testosterone level. Uh, he was more an academic type than an athlete. He was ruled by reason and not big old right hand with bad intentions. I mean, you know, <laughs> he was type that needed to be there. And he had been in the business for years. He'd had huge success. He had experience. He had wisdom. He had built strong relationships with so many members of the organization, and they trusted him. Uh, he had built and earned that trust. He was the only real choice for leading the NWA. I mean, when you sat and looked at the group, he was like, wow, who else could do this? And there may be another way to answer this question, uh, to take a, a good look at Muchnick's history. You know, and, uh, and I don't know how many people out there listening know much about Sam Muchnick, but in 1926, as a young guy, he worked at the Postal Service. And then he became a newspaper reporter for the St. Louis Times. And while he was a reporter, which was about nine years, he met a guy named Tom Pax, who was the Midwest top sports promoter. He didn't just promote wrestling. He promoted the world championship boxing matches. He promoted all different types of sports events. In 1932, Sam took a position, left the paper and took a position with Tom Pax. And he worked for Tom Pax for almost 10 years. And in those 10 years, he learned a tremendous amount about promotions and how to handle promotions. He developed skills at promoting not just wrestling, but other sports as well. In 1941, uh, the historic wrestling star named Jen Landis, personal friend of Muchnick, he's met a lot of wrestlers during this time frame working with Pax, convinced Muchnick that he ought to leave Tom Pax and he ought to start his own company. So he ran one wrestling event in Keel Auditorium right during the early part of World War II. And then after the war kicked in big time, he went in service like most people did. And uh, he returned after World War II was over and he ran his second show ever in Keele Auditorium on December 5th, 1945. War just ended. 1948, he formed a coalition of wrestling promoters, Pinky George, strange name, pretty famous in the wrestling business, Wally Carbo, who was representing Tony Stecker whose Stecker was a huge name in wrestling and because he had brothers that were stars. Orville Brown, big star. Max Clayton, Al Haft. All these guys got together, and they formed the National Wrestling Alliance, 1948. On November 27th of 49, again, uh, Muchnick was responsible, along with Luthes, who was the champion of the National Wrestling Association. Not the Alliance, but the National Wrestling Association. Sam and Lou sat down, and they figured a way to unify wrestling. Lou came and got involved and became the champion of the National Wrestling Alliance rather than the National Wrestling Association. The National Wrestling Alliance became the predominant organization in wrestling. And for the first time, there was a legitimately recognized world wrestling champion. Pretty amazing. It took 50 years for that to happen. So a year later, Mutchik becomes the new president of the National Wrestling Alliance. And it's about that time that my grandfather, Roy, got to Tennessee Territory and is a member of the NWA. 
And Mutznick maintained his position for many, many years. He was elected unanimously for nine straight years. And then he was voted out in 1960, but was only out for three years, got voted back in in 63. He was the president from 63 until 75. For 25 total years, Sam Mutznick was the president of the National Wrestling Alliance. During that time, he brought in new members from Japan, Australia, Mexico, Europe, and the Caribbean. And he made it a truly worldwide organization. It had been like a, it was truly a national American association, became a worldwide association, still called the National Wrestling Alliance. He was recognized for having done for wrestling what Pete Rozelle did for the National Football League. I mean, you know, Pete Rozelle took the National Football League and made a monster out of it. And a lot of people look back at what Sam did and say he was the Pete Rozelle of wrestling. So, Mr. Cavani, I want to thank you for your questions today. And I hope I've answered them for you. I was honored to be elected vice president of the NWA in 1985. And in my humble opinion, Sam Muchnick was born to be the president of the National Wrestling Alliance. Well, there you go. Another great show again today, Ron, to become friends with Ron Fuller, the Tennessee stud. Simply like the Ron Fuller, the Tennessee stud page and become friends with an icon, a legend on Twitter. Find him at at Ron Fuller Welch. Super stud cast number 30 with Mick Foley, Cactus Jack, Dude Love, Mankind, Whatever name you know him by, it's going to be a tremendous show. This is going to be a big one and a huge response. And and what a great guy. This has been a lot of fun, Ron. Yeah, it's it, it really has. You know, and I, I like to tell the fans this. Uh, Rob and I did this show, and uh, as soon as this show was over, we couldn't quit laughing. We, we probably laughed for 30 minutes. I mean, it was like, it was like, wow, that was such fun. And then it turned out I spoke the next day to Cactus Jack, and he was like, oh, Ron, man, I don't know when I've had this much fun. So, you know, uh, for fans that uh, are into Super Stud Cast, this is a really great one. Uh, this is part one, and uh, and part two is going to be coming out very quickly, actually a uh, week after this program is over. You know, it's a really good one. I recommend it. I highly recommend it. Or uh, so does Rob. <laughs> Rob says, gosh, Ron, we could have done six hours of that. And we could have, but I think we would have laughed ourselves out of uh, sensibility. If we had, no though. doubt about it. All right. So where, where are you headed next week? What's up for next week, Ron? Okay. We're going to be riding further into July of 1976. We got tremendous new talent arriving. I spoke of it a little bit today and uh, coming in every week now at this point in uh, 76. We're going to take a peek in the southeastern future with the upcoming NWA world champion, Terry Funk, who's going to arrive in November. Uh, We're also going to have a new today's training segment. And I'd like to thank all those fans that responded to my request for input on that new segment. Uh, Every comment I got was positive. And I thank you very much for your comments, uh, and I hope you enjoyed this one. Next week's Learning Tree is about controlling my wrestlers concerning kayfabe. And uh, gosh almighty, that's a great topic right there. I really look forward to that one. Uh, and I want to thank all my fans out there worldwide for their loyal support and their great listenership. Numbers are just amazing of the people that listen to me worldwide. And uh, 
We want everybody to take care of yourselves and, and other people as well. And may God bless us all. Great job. This is David Summers thanking you for joining us today and reminding you Ron Fuller's Studcast is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Ride with us again next week. Thanks for joining us today for this historic Studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains.